0: Turn our attention this morning to Matthew chapter 28, the second week of Act 1-8 as we devote ourselves to this call of God's Spirit to make disciple-makers. Join with me in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your Spirit to use the foolish things of this world and to use the foolishness of preaching that people might encounter you and come to know you, and experience you, and interact with you. So, Lord, would you take these words, (laughs) words that many of us have heard so many times, and make them real and applicable, not for someone else, but for each one of us. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So, if you asked a bunch of Christians... What is the church supposed to be about? I would venture to guess you'd probably get about as many answers as the times that you ask the question. What is the church to be about? Well the, well, the church is a family. The church is to be about love. The church is to help the poor, to tell other people about Jesus. The church is to be a, a safe place to raise your family. The church... It's there to, to preserve the truth from moral decay. The church is to preserve the great hymns of the faith. Many different competing views about what the church is to be about. Let me ask the question differently. When you're looking for a church, what do you look for? Well, I look for a church that's got good children's programs. I look for a church that, you know, they've got good music, you know, that the preachings from the Word. I um, look for a church place that, the place that we can connect. When you're looking for a church, are you looking for a church that is about the one thing that Jesus said the church should be about? And you ask this question, what is the church to be about? Well, let's ask a slightly different question. Who makes the decision about what the church should be about? Who is it that gets to make the call? some senses the church is a a family business. What's the business about, you ask? Well, a church, it's not owned by its members, it's not owned by the pastor, it's not owned by the elders. It's owned by the Lord Jesus Christ, for he said, I will build my church. And so when it comes to vote on the mission of our local congregation, Jesus Christ is the one who casts the only ballot that counts. He is the owner, he is the founder, he is the builder of the church, and there is one vote that counts, and it is his vote. So then, what is the church to be about? I believe the answer is given to us in this passage here in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew, Jesus is giving these words to his disciples after the resurrection, after he has died on the cross, after he has been risen from the grave. He is momentarily about to ascend into heaven, And so Jesus gives this command to his disciples. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're just going to tease this verse apart. Some of you, if you've been around the church, any church for much time at all, this verse was probably mentioned. But we're just going to wrestle through the different portions of this and exactly what Jesus is instructing us to do here. And he gives this command to them to go and to make disciples, and he ends with an encouragement. He says, listen, as you go forward, you are not alone. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You're not alone. You know, it can be frightening to think of the command that Jesus is giving here, and you're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do that. And it can be a bit frightening to go into the nations, to make disciples of the nations. How does that happen? And Jesus gives us this encouragement of, I am with you always. But let's talk about what what Jesus is not saying here. We read this command, Behold, I am with you always, and, and many times we might think, well, what this means is that when I go on a walk in the woods and I'm running through the woods, Jesus is with me. When I'm driving across the bridge to Solomon's, there, Jesus is with me. When I'm faced with a difficult situation, yes, there too, Jesus is with me. Sorry, that's, that's not what it's about. That's not what, that's not what he's saying here. Um, yes, when you drive across the Solomon's Bridge, yes, Jesus is with you, but that's, you wouldn't get that from this verse. And what Jesus is saying here in this passage is that he says, lo, I am with you always. You, the you here is plural. It's, it's to the group. It is, Jesus is saying, I am with you, the community of my people. You know, the average Christian in America thinks, you know, I can be strong without the church. I I don't need to be a part of a church to have a relationship with God. And what Jesus is saying is, you can't find me by yourself. If you want to experience my presence, you experience my presence through my people. Because it is with my people, with them, I am with them as my people are are gathered together. The, The way to understand what Jesus is saying here, it's a little bit like if we had a guest speaker here this morning. And the guest speaker said to you, hey, it's really good to be with you this morning. Just want to let you know I'm going to be back here and I'm going to be with you next week. I don't think any of you would say, okay, well, I need to go home and I need to clean my house and prepare my guest room because he's coming to my house and I need to figure out what meals we're going to have together. And if someone started to say that to you that they were doing that, you would say, wait, wait a second, that's not what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about like he's with you individually, like he's going to go to your house. What he is saying is that he is going to be with you He will be with you. He will be with the group of people next Sunday. And Jesus is saying, behold, I am with you always. I am present with you as the people of God. Yes, it is true. You are not alone. In this verse, in the mission of Christ, you are not alone, quite literally, because you're not alone. Quite literally, because the commission that he is giving here is given to a group of people, and you're doing it with other people. You're not alone. But you're also not alone because the spirit of Jesus Christ is with his people. And when his people engage in mission and obey him and follow him, Jesus, his presence is with them. Jesus guides them. Jesus is actually known through the presence of his people. So there is this command that is given to us. What does it mean for you individually? At the least, it means I and we need to join together in mission in order to experience the presence of Christ. At the least, it means I and we, we need to join together in order to obey Christ because this is a command that was given to us. Now consider the weight of Jesus' words here. He opens up by saying to his disciples, gathering them together, and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. This is about to be the very last thing that he says to his disciples. This along with Acts 1-8 that we saw last week. He's about to give them their marching orders. His parting words. It is at this moment that it is after Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, his imminent ascension, he is about to leave because of the moment. Jesus' parting words carry a weight Beyond comparison, if your boss calls you into his office and your boss says to you, just to let you know, I have just been given a gigantic promotion and I have been granted all authority and there is something that I want to tell you, how would you respond? At the least, you would wait with bated breath for what he is about to say next. You would eagerly want to know, what is, what is he going to say? Because the next words that he is about to say carry a weight beyond comparison. And this is what Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, to, commanded you. So he gives them this command, and we need to clarify what exactly the command is. In this verse, there is, a little grammar lesson here, in this verse, there is only one imperative statement. There is only one command. Imperative is a a command. Um, There is only, grammatically, there is only one command in this verse, and the one command is not go. That's not a command, it's actually a participle. The one command in this verse is not go. The one command is make disciples. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, make disciples. What does that mean? That that you have heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And that there are people to the ends of the earth, of the nations, who need to know the good news that there is a loving, gracious God who is their creator. The one from whom that they have been estranged. And that God has made a way that they could be reconciled to them. So that their guilt and shame would be removed and that they would be given new life and life abundant. And God accomplished this through the person of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And all who trust in Christ experience eternal life and joy and peace right now and life abundant as they live in response to his grace. Peoples of the earth need to hear this message. Now some of you who are here this morning are not Christians. And we're glad that you're here. And you hear me saying this, the, the saying this, and you're like, ah, there they go again. This is the thing that drives me nuts about Christians. They're all like, couldn't they just keep to themselves? They're always talking about needing to go tell, tell everyone else about that. But concede the point for a minute. What's being taught here is that, yes, there is a loving God, a loving and gracious God who is estranged from the peoples of this earth. And this loving and gracious God has acted in such a way That people could come to know him and be reconciled to him. And that this God desires that not only you, but that other people would know him and experience a life of an active relationship with God. And what, what this verse tells us is that God has declared that the way that people are going to know him, the way that this loving, eternal God has decided for how people are going to come into a relationship with him is through the words of other people. If that's the case, at the least, if you're not a Christian, at the least you could concede that if this is what the loving, gracious God has done, then yes, God's people should be about that. And that's exactly what's happening here. He gives the command, "...all authority has been given to me, therefore make disciples of all nations." Not political entities, ethnies being here, the peoples of the earth. It's a little bit what we saw last week in Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses across the street, across the tracks, across the country, across the oceans. But that is the one command. Make disciples. And everything else in this verse is describing that one command. And there's three participles that describe it. It's like uh, the three participles are Go going, baptizing, and teaching. What this means is like you say to someone, hey, I want you to walk to the store, but walk to the store chewing gum, snapping your fingers, and singing a song. Those those descriptions describe how you are to do the one main command, which at that point was to walk to the store. Here he says, make disciples. How do you do that? You do that by going, baptizing, and teaching. All three of those are dependent upon the one main command, the one imperative, which is to make disciples. So here they are go, which is one of these, which is a participle, could be translated as, as you go, or as you are going. As you are going, make disciples of all nations. As you move on, make disciples. It is a positive, proactive outreach to the nations and to people of other cultures. There are some of you that this verse, this short phrase is the characterization of your life. As you go, Because you don't settle, and your jobs that you're in causes you to continue to go and to continue to move on. And what Jesus is declaring is that for those of you who are going, as you go, here is the command. What should you do as you go, as you get picked up and moved to the next place? As you go, make disciples. Now, for others of you, for the few of you here in Southern Maryland who have been here for a while, your life isn't so much going as it is watching people Go. And you sit here and you've been here for Cornerstone for a couple of years and you just kind of watch people go. And they just kind of keep going. What is the command here for, for you? Well, as you go, as you watch people go, as there is the going of the world and, and the people of this community intersect you and they're going and, and coming, what is the calling for you? It is to make disciples. How easy it is for us to say, you know what, that person's not going to be here very long. I'm going to put my time somewhere else. And what Jesus says is, that's where you make disciples. In the going, as you only know this person for a week, two weeks, a month, a year, two years, and in the going, as you cross paths, it is not accidental, but as you are going and as they are going, your calling is that there are these divine appointments that God has put up, these intersections of your life with other people's lives, and God has put you there with this command to make disciples. What this requires is it requires an intentionality it requires an intentionality to to, to look at other people and say, there is a reason why this person is in my life. Lord, how are you calling me to love them? How are you calling me to show your love to those who are crossing through my path? As I am going, I may never see this person again. As I am going, and Jesus says, as you are going, make disciples. Second portion of this command for how to make disciples is as you are going in the movement, in the migration, is baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptizing is not simply getting someone wet. Rather, baptism baptism is the public identification with Jesus Christ and with his people. Then and now, baptism is the public admission into the church of Jesus Christ. The church is God's instrument for making disciples. Being baptized is to join the church as one who has been made a disciple and joining into Christ in his mission as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's for this reason that we as a church are committed to the priority of the local church and also to the priority of church planting and the priority of of advancing the local church because the church is God's appointed entity, God's appointed agent to make disciples and make disciples who make disciples. To push on this a little bit further, in the church office, over the course of a month, we get many, I get them in my email, we get them in the mail, we get many, many requests for financial support from all kinds of people, all kinds of missionaries, all kinds of entities. I would venture to guess that at least, at least 19 out of 20 of those requests are people requesting funds to do some sort of Christian ministry that is not connected with the church just flat out not connect not connected to not connected to the local church but remember it was Jesus Christ who said I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and to lean into this a little bit further when Jesus sends his disciples out to build his church what he is going to do when Jesus sends them out he did not establish a scribal colony He didn't take his disciples and said, you guys really know what this means. We're going to have you sit down and you're going to spend the rest of your life making lots and lots and lots and lots of copies. I am fully in favor of Bible translation and the propagation and the saturation of the world with the word of God. But he didn't set them up as a scribal colony. He also didn't set them up as an orphanage. Though God calls us to care for the weak and for the needy. What he called them to do and what he charged them to do was to make disciples... He said that he would build his church and through his church make disciples and as people go to the ends of the earth. For it is in the church that there is disciple-making happening, that there is life on life where lives lives are shared and disciples are made. So we're called to make disciples as you're going. Make disciples by baptizing them and joining them into the local body. Make disciples by teaching them, thirdly, to observe all that I commanded you. The key phrase on this, fourth, on this third one is to observe. Teaching them to observe. There is a difference between teaching and teaching someone to observe. If you think about it, how do you teach? You can teach somebody is that there is a proclamation, and certainly the gospel needs to be proclaimed. But teaching, there is a proclamation, there is an information distribution distribution. But that's not what he's recalling here. He says, teach them to observe. That requires a different level of investment. That requires a different level of involvement into a person's life. Consider this from a, um, a sports team picture. Many of you are involved in soccer or other sports teams. Imagine that your soccer coach, the, jo- the, the, the job of your soccer coach is to teach you how to play soccer. And so wouldn't it be great if your soccer coach could just stand up and read to you the rule book, this is what you do, and then you go do it, just teaching. But what happens is that if you see another team playing and they're not playing very well, what the response is is you say, that team that's not playing very well, they were not taught very well. That team has not been coached very well. Why? Was it because that team wasn't given the information? No, they had the information, but they weren't taught to observe. And it wasn't being observed on the field and observed in their life. And so Jesus' command here is make disciples, teaching them to observe. You see the same pattern of this investment of making disciples being different than teaching and proclamation in the life of Paul. In Acts chapter 14 Describing his missionary journeys, it said, "When they had preached the gospel to that city, that was one thing that they did and had made many disciples, they returned. When they had preached and they had made many disciples. It's the same word that's used here in, in Matthew chapter 28. They had preached proclamation and made many disciples. What happened? There was a level that went beyond information propagate pro- proclamation. There was something that happened where there was life transformation, where people were changed, where their lives were changed, where the information wasn't just communicated, but that information was accepted, received, embodied, and being lived out in their life. E.M. Bounds, some years ago, said, reflecting about on how the gospel advances and how churches and Christians try to make the gospel advance, and he said, men are always looking for better methods. God is looking for better men for men are His method. Get broader than that. People are always looking for better methods. People are always looking for someone else to do what God is calling them to do. People are always looking for better methods but God is looking for better people for people are His method. And so these three phrases here, these participles, going, baptizing, and teaching, all fit in to this call to make disciples. And you see this transmission occurring in the life of Paul in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2, Paul instructs Timothy, and count the generations here, he says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. How many generations of transmission went on there? Paul to Timothy, would you have heard from me? Paul to Timothy, would you have heard from me? trust to faithful men. Paul to Timothy to faithful men. Who will be able to teach others also? Paul to Timothy to faithful men who are teaching others also. That's a four-generation transmission. How does that happen? It doesn't just happen by just information proper. Prop- Information propagation. It happens because people are devoting themselves and teaching them to obey. What this means is that to make disciples is not just have I blasted out information? It's not just have I blasted out information and someone else has received that information. But it goes further than that. It says have I communicated information? Have I transferred a life product in such a way that it's that life product is present in another person's life? And not just that. Have I trans, have I And discipled someone in such a way that I have transferred a life product into another person in such a way that they have transferred that life product into another person? Actually, that's not it either. It is, have I had such a life product, have I discipled someone in such a way that that life product has transferred from me into the life of someone else and I have been able to coach and instruct that other person on how to coach and instruct another person on how to bring that to be present in the life of yet another person? Four generations out. That fundamentally requires a shift of how you engage in the calling to make disciples. And so let's just tie this together and to be clear exactly what it is that we're talking about. The significance of this instruction, writes John Kaiser, is that the core of Jesus' command, what does it mean to make disciples? The core of Jesus' command is to produce new committed followers from the raw material of the nations, people of every ethnicity. The core of his command is to make new, committed followers from the raw material of the nations. What is the church to be about? Making disciple makers. Making disciples of the nations. So we have embarked on Act 1-8 because it is a call of God's Spirit directly derived from God's Word. It is a call of God's Spirit for us to make disciple-makers of the nation. Now, you notice that the word here actually says make disciples, right? And we're saying make disciple-makers. We felt it was necessary to do so because the word disciple has become distorted in Christian usage. The the meaning of it has been shifted into something that's passive. But the biblical picture of a disciple is one who makes disciples who makes disciples. The biblical picture of a disciple is one who, who follows Jesus Christ in order to make followers of Jesus Christ. That the biblical picture of a disciple is one who is a disciple maker. But American Christians have turned that into this passive activity. That somehow the disciple making, well, that's for other people. And Scripture says, no, if you're a follower of Christ, your calling is to make followers of Christ. give you a different example. You think of the, the brave men who serve as Navy SEALs. What does it mean to be a Navy SEAL? Well, it's not about the badge that they wear. It's not about their uniform. It's not about the rigorous training that they have received and that the fact that they got through it it is about the mission. They receive the uniform and the badge and the training. They receive that. Why? Because they are, they are sent on a mission. And so if you have a Navy SEAL who went through the training, who's got the uniform, who's got the badge, but who refuses to go on a mission, he's not a SEAL, right? Because the SEALs are the ones who are trained in order to go on a mission, and a disciple of Jesus Christ is one who joins into the mission of Jesus Christ. A disciple is one who makes disciples that make disciples. A call of God to make disciple makers. will give you a different picture of this. For each one of us when you were growing up or if you're growing up right now, There comes a moment in your life, you know, as a child when you're you're young, you are a consumer, you are a complete financial consumer of your household resources. Right? You're not a contributor to it. But as you grow, there comes a point where there needs to be a shift from being a financial consumer to being independent to being a financial consumer to being a financial producer to being a financial contributor. If in the course of your development as a teenager and into adulthood you never actually become a financial contributor but your entire adult life is still as a consumer there's something went wrong in your development right something something went wrong in that process similarly in your spiritual life there comes a time when you need to shift from being a spiritual consumer to being a spiritual producer there comes a time when you need to shift from being a spiritual consumer to being a spiritual contributor. Now, when are you ready to make that shift? Quite frankly, it's probably much sooner than you think. For someone characterized all the Christian life is, it's one beggar telling another beggar where they can find bread. It's not hard. Happens probably a whole lot sooner a whole lot sooner than you think to invest in the life of another, to witness to what Christ has done, to make disciples, and as you yourself are growing, to invest that in the lives of others. But that is the command that Jesus gives, to make disciple-makers. I believe it's still true that the largest church in the world is um, Yodo Full Gospel Church in South Korea. And this church, for decades... Grew, grew at at least 20 percent a year. Every year, they grew by 20 percent a year. every year. Actually, they did so for the entire second half of the 20th century. 1958 was about when they started by the early 1970s, they had 10,000 members, registered members, and they called their membership roles. By 1977, they had 50,000 members. And then within two years, they had doubled. On November 30th, 1981, they had 200,000 members as a part of their church. They became the largest church in the world at that moment. In 1983, they continued to grow. At that point in time, they had a 12,000-seat sanctuary, and they were having seven Sunday services at their church, and they went to satellite services as well. By 1992, the church had 700,000 members. 2003 they had 780,000 members. In 2007, um, 2007 they had 830,000 members. They had seven services on Sundays, multiple sites, and their services occurred in 16 different languages. Year after year, exponential growth. How does that occur? Well, Randy Pope, some of you are familiar with him from his journey group curriculum. He's a PCA pastor. He interviewed the pastor of Yodafil Gospel Church. And so he interviewed with him. He interviewed him and he said, so, what is your secret? You know, how do you as a church grow at at least 20% every year, year after year for decades? How do you do that? The pastor said, well, it's actually very simple. People will look for something, some crazy methodology. It's very simple. We take our members and we put them into groups of 10. And their mission is to lead two people to Christ a year. So groups of ten, two people to Christ a year, that turns into at least 20% growth every year. That's how it happens. Okay? What happens if a group doesn't do that? But they do. (laughs) But they do. Well, But what if they don't? But they they do. Okay. Well, just imagine that they don't. Well, they do because this is what God calls them to do. Okay. Just hypothetically, just imagine with me one day. You know, imagine that they don't. How would you respond? What would happen? And he said, 10 Christians, Christ mm. Christians, wow. Christians don't lead two people to Christ in a year? Disobedient Christians need church discipline. Wow. 10 Christians don't lead two people to Christ in a year? Disobedient Christians need church discipline. When I first heard that, I bust out laughing, as some of you restrained. And then I said, shame on me. Do you treat the command of Jesus Christ as optional in your life? Do you treat the command to make disciples as optional? Or do you see your disregard for it? is a fundamental act of disobedience. That if disciple-making is not present in your life, do you view it that you are now living out of accord with God's purpose? That you are living out of accord with the parting words of the one to whom all authority on heaven and on earth has been granted, and who, as his parting words says... All authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And it will do no good to say, well, I'm called to disciple my children, and my children are the great commission for me. Yes, you are called to disciple your children, absolutely. But don't make the mistake that Israel made throughout the Old Testament, which was thinking that God gave the promises of God to them for them and for their own benefit that the hope of God was for them and for their own children, and you know, who really cares what happens to uh, what else, everyone else. I mean, I've got the promises, and I just need to make sure that they're passed on to my children. Do you view the command of Jesus Christ as optional? And the command that he gives here is make disciples of all nations. Sure, that includes your family, but it's a lot bigger than that. And so as we step forward into Act 1-8, which you've heard us say, and you'll hear us say again, this is a call of God's Spirit to commit ourselves and to recommit ourselves to the primary task of making disciple-makers. I say commit ourselves. For some of you, this is new. You're, you're a relatively new believer, and you're, you're saying, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to live for Christ? What a, I want my life to count. I want to join into what Christ is doing. And it means to join into making disciple-makers, and that is exciting. But I also say commit and or recommit. I say commit because there are some of you who have been to church for a really long time. And this isn't the first sermon that you've heard on Matthew 28. This isn't the first initiative that you've seen this put up on banners and on slogans, different places. This isn't the first time that you've heard a discussion about making disciples of all nations. But as you've heard those things, you said, I really hope other people do that. You know, I really want to go to a church that's making disciples because they should be doing that. And so maybe you've been going to church for years. Maybe you've been going to church your entire life. And every time that this has come up, come, up, come along, you're saying, yeah, yeah, how about that? Okay, boy, I hope someone else does it. And so we say Act one is the call of God's spirit to make disciples makers, to, to commit, for you to commit to the primary task of making disciple makers. For others of you, it means a matter of recommitting to it. Because you've, wanted to, you've been living for Christ, you've been serving, and life happens, things get in the way, things get distracted, you get involved in other, other aspects. And so this is a time for us as a church to say, Lord Jesus, the one purpose that you have for your church... The the parting words were to make disciples, and yes, these things about loving our neighbors and caring for the poor and proclaiming Christ, all those things fit into being a disciple and being a church, but the primary command is to make disciple-makers, and we are devoting this time and prayer and the energy that we are putting ourselves into this so that you as individual members and we as a church would commit ourselves and recommit ourselves to this primary task of making disciple-makers. I think one shift that needs to occur within us is to embrace a disciple-making mindset. It's to look at the things that are going on in my life and the people that pass through my life and not to say, well, that person's going to be gone in a short period of time that's not worth the time and effort. But to shift to a disciple-making mindset and saying, wow, that person's going to be gone in a short period of time. I've got a whole lot of work to do in a very short period of time. I've got a unique opportunity, a unique window to make a disciple of someone before they go to the ends of the earth, to shift into a disciple-making mindset and the things that you're doing and the tasks that we do in our church and the ministry activities of our church, all of those things, the tasks that we do, it's not about getting the tasks done. All of those tasks simply serve as an opportunity for life-on-life engagement both of the people that you're working with and also the people that you are investing in and investing towards. More specifically, what does this look like? You may think through this and say, making disciples have, you know, wow, that's terrifying. And you begin to ask and begin to earnestly pray, Lord, would you help me? You have commanded us and therefore me to make disciples disciples. Lord, would you use me to this end? I don't even know what that means. But I do think there's a question that we as Christians should regularly evaluate our life in. We should say, when I look at my life, when I look at my spiritual journey, have I made a disciple? Have I made a disciple? As I have been going, wherever the Lord has made me go, have I made a disciple in any place that the Lord has put me? That's a question that we should be asking ourselves and beseeching the Lord to help us and to work through us to make true. I think there's, when you look at the biblical picture of what is it to, to make disciples, the different dynamics of that, for each one of us, I think there needs to be three key relationships. You have a relationship where someone is investing in you, relationships that you are co-laboring with, and people that you yourself are investing in. I think you see this in the life of the Apostle Paul, when through the book of Acts, after Paul comes to faith in Christ, the the narrative of Acts says Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas was certainly certainly the lead, and God was using Barnabas to raise somebody up who would be far more gifted and far more effective. And about midway through the book of Acts, ever going Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, it shifts to Paul and Barnabas. And the rest of the book of Acts, it says Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. And then there's another shift that occurs where it starts to say Paul and Timothy and Barnabas and and John Mark, Paul and Silas and Barnabas and John Mark, is that there is is this pattern of discipleship where someone should be investing in you, Barnabas to Paul, co-laborers in ministry, which became Paul and Barnabas, and then investing in the lives of other people, Paul to Timothy, Barnabas to John Mark. Paul to, to Silas and all the other people that Paul brought with him and what he was doing. And certainly we acknowledge that there's different gifts, and this looks differently in different people's lives. And there is encouragement as we open up with that you are not alone, and that this is a command that God has given to us. And because he has given it to us, yes, it means he has given it to you. And what we pray for as a church and as a church leadership is that God would use our church to move people from unbelief to belief, from belief to maturity, from maturity to ministry multiplication. It's what we call becoming a mature and equipped disciple of Jesus Christ. A mature follower of Christ, one who knows what they believe, why they believe it, and is consistently being lived out in their life. An equipped follower of Christ, one who has the tools of a disciple and knows how to use those tools in order to make disciple-makers. On the back of the sermon note guide and discussion guide is this, on the back page of it is this listing. This is the, the portrait that we use as a church of what is, it, what is a disciple, What does a disciple of Jesus Christ look like? We use this, this guides our Sunday school classes, this guides the different ministries that we're engaged in. This is also available as a tool for you to look at and evaluate yourself point by point and to say, is this true of me? Is this this evidence in my life? Is there fruit of this point in my life? And if there's not, that's an area where we as a church come alongside you to equip you and to build you up and to disciple you so that you can make disciple-makers, And so that you would be sent out from here, being more equipped. So that as people come through Southern Maryland, as the goings of people move through our area and and move out across our country, that people would come in here at varying places in their spiritual journey, but they would leave here as disciple makers. That maybe they come here and this is the first time they ever teach a Sunday school class. But they leave here more effective and ready to teach someone else how to to teach Sunday school class. It means that you shift a focus where you're focusing on people and investing your life on the pe- lives on people. Let's tie these things together. What is the church about? More importantly, who gets to decide what the church is about? And the one vote that counts is, the, is from the one person who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And what he has said the church is to be about is to make disciples of the nations. That was what he did in his own life. It was his method. He made disciples and he sent them out to make disciples. It's what he did. It was his plan. It is his plan to reach the nations so that they would know the Lord and come to be reconciled with God. It's what Jesus did. He had no other plan and it's what he commands us to do. So we are devoting our time to get a time as a church in Act 1-8 so that we would act in response to God's grace. That we, individually and collectively, would commit or recommit ourselves to the call of God's Spirit to make disciple-makers. Let's pray together. Father, would you work in us to make (laughs) disciple-makers? Father, would you convict us? Father, for the many of us who have heard a similar message to this for many years of their life and are so glad that it applies to somebody else, who have heard a message like this and say, well, that's not my gifting, and Lord, as we read scriptures, as we read the scripture, it doesn't say it's a command for certain people with certain gifts, But it's a command that you have given that your disciples would be those who make disciples who make disciples. Lord, for some of us, that's a terrifying idea. But Lord, we thank you that the hope and power of doing so is not through us and not through ourselves, but it is through your Spirit who has decided that you will use people to reach people in a supernatural way that they encounter you. So Father, though it may terrify us, we ask Lord that you would use us to make disciples, so that others would encounter you and be reconciled you, reconciled to you, to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.